Take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40, I'm sure that this is the very section you have been anticipating for a long time. Some of you really have. I hope you aren't let down when you leave here this evening. Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me to the city. In visions of God, He brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When He brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze and a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And He was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So I preached the introduction to Ezekiel on January 11th last year, just, just a little bit over a year ago, and it's, it's been quite a ride. I, I've learned a lot. I think it was Mark Dever one time who said that a topical preacher will never preach more than he already knows. And I think Dever was correct about that. But one of the challenges of biblical exposition is that we aren't just getting up here every week preaching something we already know. We're learning with every sermon in the preparation. And that's, that's certainly been the case with the book of Ezekiel. Now I'm sure you'll recall that Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah, though his ministry did not begin until later when he was exiled to Babylon in the second wave of captives. Uh, Daniel was carried away in the, the first wave. The world power of that day, Babylon, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, had nearly conquered the Holy Land, as it's often called, when Ezekiel's ministry began. And for some 32 and a half chapters, we read of prophetic promise of judgment after judgment after judgment with explanation after explanation after explanation. The gist of it was that God had been good to Israel, a faithful husband, as it were, and she had constantly been the unfaithful wife. There were hints of restoration through those chapters, shadows of the new covenant, but most of those chapters focused primarily on the imminent judgment for their recurring sin, specifically the destruction of Jerusalem, the walls of the city, and the temple. And then in chapter 33... Verse 21, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to Ezekiel and said, The city has been struck down. And from that point on, God has promised not only restoration to the land, but a future nationwide conversion, not through the Old Covenant law, but through the New Covenant, through Jesus. 
Yahweh Himself promised to be their good shepherd in chapter 34, clearly referring to Jesus as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. At the end of chapter 34, God promised to make with them a covenant of peace when they would be not only at peace with their enemies, not only at peace with the animal kingdom, but they would be at peace with God Himself. This covenant of peace, of course, is it's the new covenant rooted, founded in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is all through the book of Ezekiel. I hope that we've been faithful to point that out as we've worked through this great book. And then in chapter 36, one of the clearest prophecies of the new covenant, God promises to restore them to their land and convert them to Himself. Here's what God says, Ezekiel 36 verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This, this had to be great comfort to these Jewish captives exiled in Babylon. God was not finished with them. He had not tossed them away, as it were. They had been unfaithful. That is clear. They had suffered for their unfaithfulness. They had received the curses contained in the law. Nevertheless, God remained faithful to Israel and He remained faithful to the covenants that He had made with their fathers. We studied the Valley of Dry Bones in chapter 37 in which God once again promised to restore them to their land saying, I will put my spirit within you, you shall live, I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. That's God's interpretation of the dry bones passage. So if that's not how you see it, you can take that up with God. That's His interpretation. <laughs> Look, their hope was not the Mosaic Code. Did you notice again, their hope is the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. You shall know me. The Mosaic Code, that, that, was, that was over. They had been tried and they had failed. They couldn't earn salvation. Now their hope, even 500 years before He came, was Jesus. Their long-awaited Messiah and King, the Savior of the world. They could not save themselves. What they needed was the sovereign grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ to save them. And just so we're clear, even today, as a nation, they are still in need of that exact same thing. They are still a Christ-rejecting Nation. There are a few individual Jews here and there that believe in Jesus, Messianic Jews. They are often called, but as Paul said, it's just a very small remnant at this present time. The vast majority of Jews are unbelievers. 
Chapters 38 and 39 of this book contain a prophecy against a particular enemy of Israel, Gog, and his land that he reigned over was the land of Magog, attacking them while living in a time of peace. Now look, even after the Babylonian captivity, the Old Testament text bears out that the Jews were still not living at peace. They were very hated by their neighbors. Those around them persecuted them. Those two chapters then have to be future, even in our day. But but the point is that God will defend them, destroying Gog and all of the nations that come with Him against them, all of the nations that align with Him. And then at the end of chapter 39... There is another promise of restoration and conversion. Look at chapter 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. That they had again and again and again polluted. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery They have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assemble them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Again, their hope is not the Mosaic law. It is the new covenant. That is clear. Now that is the Cliff's Notes version of the book of Ezekiel up to this Point. That actually brings us right up to the text that we are looking at this evening. Now, if you're following along in an ESV, you probably see a heading that reads, Vision of the New Temple. This vision containing a very meticulous description of this new temple is nine chapters long. It's going to take us all the way to the end of this wonderful book. We are not going to make it that far this evening, so you can just heave a sigh of relief. My goal tonight is is twofold. First, I just want to work through these four verses really quickly and set the stage for the rest of it. Then, secondly, this will be the bulk of what we do this evening, I'm going to do something I don't love to do but sometimes is necessary. I'm going to do a very quick, relatively quick, topical study of this temple, exploring various interpretations of it. I will take great pains to make sure that everything that we read is in context, of course, even topical. And if you don't know why this is important, you probably will by the end of the night. This is important. So the title this evening is simply Introducing Ezekiel's Temple. Again, I just want to set the stage focusing on this temple primarily and where it fits in the the biblical timeline. Alright, verse 1, chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th month 
uh, t- excuse me, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me to the city. So back in chapter 33, verse 21, the, the date given to the previous six messages of restoration that we've spent the last several months looking at is the twelfth year of our exile, the tenth month, the fifth day of the month. That means this vision here that carries us through the end of the book, this vision was given at least 13 years after those visions there. There is order in the way that Ezekiel unfolds, but it's not always perfectly chronological order. It's often thematic. You're sticking with a theme. For instance, the vision of chapter 29, verses 17 through 21 actually dates after this vision here. It dates, according to that text, in the 27th year in the first month on the first day of the month. But but nevertheless, this final section, these last nine chapters, 40 through 48, they sort of stand separately. Over a decade has, has gone and went since Ezekiel had his last vision, and thematically this sound stands somewhat separate. So Ezekiel was, was carried in a vision to Jerusalem, no doubt the same city that was struck down. You know, he says in the 14th year after the city was struck down, that's clearly Jerusalem, he brought me to the city. I mean, it's Jerusalem. It doesn't take a lot of work to get there. God is going to show him a very lengthy vision. And this is going to give Ezekiel hope of restoration. You have to remember when he's living. I mean, he is, he's living at a time when they worshipped in, in the temple. It had been torn down and for God to take him to the city and show him another temple, God says essentially, I'm not through with the Jews. This would be encouraging to Ezekiel. Verse 2, in, in the visions of God, He brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Very, very large structure. Some say this very high mountain is, is Mount Zion, maybe. Others say it's Mount Hermon. Some say, no, 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 this is not, this is not a mountain. This, is, this was part of his vision. So he's on a mountain in the vision, but he's looking at Jerusalem. None of that really matters in the big scheme of things. The mountain is not what's important here. It's the rest of what follows. The view Ezekiel has, and this is what matters, is of the city and the structure that is said to be like a city to the south. That's what's key. Our study of this structure, this building, will complete our study of the book of Ezekiel. That's how, that's how huge of a prophecy this is, if that's the right word to use. This vision, I should say. Verse 3, When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. So some believe that this man here is merely just, just an interpreting angel, like, like the interpreting angel that was sent to Daniel, or the interpreting angel that was sent to, to John when he received the book of Revelation, oftentimes an angel would come and in, interpret things. However, in chapter 44 verse 2 and chapter 44 verse 5, it seems 
this man is referred to as the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Well, that leads many to believe then that this is actually a pre-incarnate you know, appearance of Jesus, a Christophany, it's, it's often called. And this man has a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. From what I understand, the cord would be used to measure long measurements and the reed, which was like a stick, would be used to measure Shorter measurements. You're going to see some really large measurements as we work through these things. A stick isn't going to get it. It took something longer to measure here. I mean, these are going to be used to determine the measurements of the temple and the measurements of the surrounding area. Verse 4 says, The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So, so Ezekiel was to look, he was to pay attention, he was to hear, and he was to consider it. He was to, to set his heart to understand the vision, and then he was, he was to pass it on to the people of Israel. Now there's a caveat to that. We'll read about that here in just a moment in chapter 43, but just hold on to that for just a second. And then the remainder of this book is devoted to describing what Ezekiel sees here, this structure, he calls it, the temple, the vision of the new temple, the ESV calls it. So the rest of our, that's, that's the little bit of verse by verse exposition you get tonight. The rest of the time I want to talk about various approaches to this temple, how people interpret this temple. Perhaps no section of the Bible has been more hotly debated than Ezekiel 40 through 48. I mean, there are people calling each other really bad names over this section. Not not you know, ugly words that we aren't supposed to use, but things like heretic and stuff, which is pretty bad. To describe this passage as controversial is to put it mildly. It it is. The fact that there is really no cross-reference to these nine chapters makes it even more difficult. There's not another passage like it. It's sort of like the head covering of, of 1 Corinthians 11. There is no other passage to compare that passage to. Well, this is much bigger than that. This is nine chapters long. A few years ago, the elders here were asked about this temple during a Q&A. And Brian and Jacob just stood me up and put me up here to the podium. And I recall giving a, uh, an answer something like this. I think it's this, but this is hard and I'm honestly not sure. I'm somewhat further along from that this evening, but there's still a lot of questions surrounding this temple. Will it be rebuilt in the future? What's going to be the purpose of it? Those type of questions. And I'm going to offer my thoughts this evening, but I will probably leave some questions unanswered because I don't have the answer. There's nothing to compare this to. And since Brian and Jacob bent and twisted the preaching calendar months in advance so that I would have this introduction, Brian even offering to preach two Sundays in a row when we got iced out, I will direct any of your unanswered questions to them if you look up after Amen and they're still here. 
Blake doesn't know anything about it. I've already asked him. But basically, I just want to explore a number of popular views and offer some reasons why I think they may or may not have merit. Okay, here we go. First, some good, reputable, premillennial scholars believe that this temple will be rebuilt during the Messianic Kingdom Age, the millennial reign of Christ, it's often called, and will be a fully functioning temple with Old Covenant sacrifices exactly as they are described in this text as we work through. For instance, John MacArthur writes this, quote, This could not be the heavenly temple since Ezekiel was taken to Israel to see it. It could not be Zerubbabel's temple since the glory of God was not present then. It could not be the eternal temple since the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. Therefore, it must be the earthly millennial temple with all of the exquisite details that are yet to be outlined, end quote. He goes on, speaking of the sacrifices mentioned in later chapters. Here's exactly what he says, quote, Exact offerings in language just as definitive as the literal descriptions in Moses' day are just as literal here. They are of a memorial nature. They are not efficacious any more than Old Testament sacrifices were. As Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Christ's deaths, so these are tangible expressions not completing, excuse me, not competing with, but pointing back to the value of Christ's completely effective sacrifice once for all. End quote. So listen, let me just try to sum that up. I am glad that he says these are not efficacious and that only Christ saves. I do appreciate that. But the key sentence here was that he says they are of a memorial nature. Now just tuck that away for a moment. Michael Vlock agrees with him, who I think is one of the best prophetic scholars of our generation. Here's what he writes, quote, Just as sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant were typological, pointing forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifices described with Ezekiel's temple could be re retrospected, drawing attention to Christ's completed sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Instead, they point to Christ's perfect sacrifice, end quote. He did at least say, could be. So I'll, I'll give him uh, props for that. And I appreciate the fact that he explains that these sacrifices cannot take away sin. I, I, I appreciate that. John Walford, one more quote premillennial scholar, here's what he writes, quote, in the millennium, apparently, I appreciate the apparently there. That, that tells you how, none of these guys are coming down solid, right? It's, it's apparently or could be or maybe. In the millennium, apparently, sacrifices will also be offered, though somewhat different than those required under the Mosaic Law, but this time the sacrifices will be memorial, much as the Lord's Supper is a memorial in the church age for the death of Christ, end quote. He, he goes on to explain a bit more, but that's the gist of what he says. I, I could read more quotes just like this. Most premillennial scholars take this exact view. Now, last week, Jacob went to much detail to affirm that the elders here are premillennial, just like Walvard or Vlock or... MacArthur. We firmly believe national Israel will be restored to their land. They will be converted through the new covenant 
ushering in Jesus' return when He will reign from David's throne over this world during a golden age. We are premillennial. But we just cannot get on board with this common interpretation. I love John MacArthur. I love Michael Vlock. If John MacArthur walked in that door tonight, we'd put him in the pulpit and we'd let him preach. They're committed expositors, men who align with us greatly here. But their interpretation just seems to miss the plain meaning of the text. Let me just show you. Look at chapter 42, verse 13. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. Look down at chapter 43, verse 19. You shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. Verse 22. On the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. Verse 25. For seven days you shall provide a daily male goat for a sin offering. Look at chapter 44, verse 27. And on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister to the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord. Two verses down, verse 29. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. Chapter 45, verse 15. One sheep from every flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, Peace offering to make atonement for them, declares the Lord. Verse 17, it shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Verse 19, we're almost there. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar, the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance. By the way, that's pretty good proof that this is not talking about an eternal temple, that there's sin going on there. You shall make atonement for the temple, verse 22. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. On the seven days of the temple he shall provide a burnt offering for the Lord, seven young bulls, seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. In the seventh month, excuse me, verse 25, in the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for the seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and for oil. Unomas, chapter 46, verse 20, he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering where they shall bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out to the outer court and so transmit holiness to the people. 
I know that's a lot of verses that we read through very quickly. I have no desire to explain them tonight. But we read this for the words that I kept stressing as we worked through there. The, the, the proof that this is not memorial is just overwhelming. This, this language does not allow for memorial sacrifices. They are clearly offerings for sin through which atonement is made or language has no meaning. That's what it says here. Now the primary argument of many premillennialists, and again, that's what we are, like MacArthur or Vlock or Walford, is that we have to believe this is a millennial temple in order to retain our literal approach to the book. I would respond by saying that nothing in this text or any other text places this in the kingdom age. Like there's nothing here that says that. We will not read that. That's an assumption. If you remember what MacArthur said, just since we've never seen it before, must be in the kingdom. Like that's, that's not good theology. That's not good interpretation. Secondly, it should be pointed out that in an attempt to make this temple literal, they don't take any of the verses I just read literally. Well, you can't take part of it literally and then ignore everything we just read about a sin offering, a guilt offering, or making atonement. You have to change all of those to memorial in order to get that interpretation. Look, I am a literalist. I believe we need to take the Scripture as literally as we possibly can which means these offerings repeatedly being called a sin offering or a guilt offering through which atonement is made should be taken as it reads. They're not memorial. Sin is being dealt with in some manner. And I'll explain that in a second. The Lord's Supper is memorial. Right? Communion. The Lord's table. That's why we never read of it being called a sin offering or a guilt offering. Or anything that makes atonement. In fact, if somebody said that, we would balk at that language. The Catholic Church actually takes it that way. That there is grace to be found in the communion. We do not believe that. And rightly so. Not to mention the Lord's Supper is only to be a memorial until when? 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. Until He comes. So the picture... The memorial is set aside once our faith becomes sight. Right? Once we are in the very presence of Christ Himself, Jesus, the Savior, we don't need the memorial anymore. Well, it just seems unreasonable to my mind that an old system, the old covenant law, now replaced by the new covenant, would be reinstituted while setting aside a supper that Jesus Himself instituted as a true memorial of His death, and that we would revert back to something that is old. Listen, I I just can't accept that. It, It seems completely unreasonable. If we did not have the book of Hebrews, I might could be swayed by MacArthur and Vlock. But we in fact do have the book of Hebrews. And I've preached through it. And the message of it is clear. The sacrifices under the old covenant law were completely powerless 
Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All those sacrifices did was delay judgment. That's the way in which they dealt with sin that I mentioned earlier. They delayed judgment, but they never, ever put sin away. The writer of Hebrews, whomever he is, is writing to a Jewish audience explaining to them that the old covenant law is done away in Christ and that it has been replaced by the new covenant. That is his point. Listen to these words, Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. The first covenant, the old covenant, is the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant made the Mosaic covenant obsolete. They do not, listen, they do not work alongside one another. No, the new covenant is far better. That's the theme of the entire letter to the book of Hebrews. Again, I preached it verse by verse. I'm confident in that. The writer's telling his Jewish readers not to go back to the temple and its sacrifices because they're just empty sacrifices. There's nothing there. So I do not believe I can be possibly convinced that there will then be sacrifices reinstituted during the kingdom age, after the nation of Israel receives Christ. That just, my brain cannot process that. It seems nonsensical. And it certainly seems to flatly contradict the message of the writer of Hebrews. So, since they've given me the pulpit this evening, I do not believe these plans are for a future millennial temple in which memorial sacrifices will be made. Okay, the rest of the study won't take nearly that long. That one took a little bit more explaining because I'm dealing with guys we agree with on a lot of stuff and saying, well, we don't agree with this point here. Let's work through a few more. Second, there is a a second approach to this, this temple. Some scholars believe these are the plans Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity. These are the plans that Zerubbabel should have used in building the second temple, but for whatever reason he did not. That makes sense to me. There is merit there with the exception of one itty-bitty thing. The Bible never says that. In fact, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them, to correct them after the Babylonian captivity, and there is not a smidgen that tells them, you built the wrong building. I don't think that that's a good explanation then. If there had been no post-captivity prophets, that might be something we could bank on, but there were. All right, let's move on. Third, Replacement scholars, amillennialists, postmillennialists, historic premillennialists, those who believe that the church is, is now the true Israel, most of them interpret these nine chapters to somehow represent the church, saying that Ezekiel is just describing ideal worship. Again, you, you've got to deal with the words in the text, though. Some believe that this actually describes Jesus, the ideal Jew. Look, as we read through these chapters over the next couple of months, and we're going to fly through them, we're not going to 
look at every minutia of every word. But as we read through these, you will see believing that this describes the church is, just takes more exegetical gymnastics than the memorial thing that I talked about just a second ago. Look, Ezekiel is taken to Israel, to Jerusalem to see this vision. That alone makes little sense if this is talking about saints spread out all over the world during this age. Like that just doesn't add up. So fourth, some have apparently likened this to the eternal ages. I've already pointed out one reason that's impossible. I mean, there's the presence of sin and death in this section. I, I look forward to a day when there is no sin and there is no death. Not only that, Revelation 21, speaking of the new Jerusalem and the eternal ages, it seems rather clear to me. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Like that, that, I don't know how we get to the eternal ages then. By the way, if Jesus is physically present during the kingdom reign, which I certainly believe He will be, then it seems He could similarly be called the temple during that time. But I don't, I don't have time to get off into that. All right, that brings me to the fifth approach. Look at chapter 43. Let's look at what the text says. Maybe that's a better place to start than a bunch of blog posts. Chapter 43, verse 10. Listen to what God says very closely to the prophet Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple. Now that's what he said initially in, in, in our text this evening in chapter 40, verse 4. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. Listen to this. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design. Make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. He was told if they are ashamed of all they've done, make this design known to them. These instructions were not given to John the Baptist. They were not given to Zerubbabel. They were given to Ezekiel particularly. Ezekiel was the one who received these words, not the leader of a subsequent generation. Now I say all that to say this. If, if, if he, Ezekiel, saw a repentant nation during his day, he was to give them the plans for the temple. Now, I ask you seriously, if you know your Bible, were they repentant after the Babylonian captivity? The answer to that question is no, they were not. They were not in any way repentant. When given the opportunity to return to their homeland, which is probably well after the death of Ezekiel, only a very small remnant returned and they were anything but faithful. God 
had to go back to the same thing he'd been doing before the captivity. He had to send them prophet after prophet, nudging them to do the work that they were supposed to do. He sent them Haggai, he sent them Zechariah, he sent them Malachi, right? He had to send to them and say, stop worrying about your own houses and build my house. That's Haggai 1. And think of this. It is not at all surprising that these instructions would be given at a time, or at this time, since Jesus, who fulfilled all the sacrifices we've read about here tonight, was not born for about 500 years later. Right? It's not surprising that He gave them instructions to build a temple. But now, Jesus has come. And He has fulfilled all of the sacrificial system. There's no reason to believe there needs to be another temple built. Again, that flies in the face of Hebrews. Especially one including sacrifices for sin or guilt or to make... Atonement. Now, if I was pinned down and get a gun to my head, I would tell you that my view is Ezekiel never saw a truly repentant people, so he never openly at least gave them the plans to build this structure. Here's the benefit of that position. It allows us to take every word literally. Just as we've taken every word before Literally. And yet at the same time, it allows us to believe and know that Jesus fulfilled it all, and now there's no reason for another temple. That's the benefit. There may be other approaches I've not read about, but that's the big approaches. Now listen, I I am not saying that the Jews may not build another temple. I'm not saying that. The only thing holding them up from building a temple and starting yesterday, is the fact that they don't own the property. The Muslims own it. And they've built their own Islamic mosque on that property today. But the moment that the Jews get the property, I'm certain they will begin building another temple. And nevertheless, Daniel 9.27, still yet future at least in my mind, seems to point to an antichrist figure stopping sacrificial worship about the middle of the tribulation period that Jacob talked about uh, last week, the coming time of of Jacob's, Israel's trouble. And in Revelation 11, John is instructed to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Another seemingly future event. So it does seem that there will be a Jewish temple built at some point. And if if I were an unbelieving Jew, guess which plan I'd want to follow? I'd want to follow this cool plan we're going to study about in Ezekiel, right? That's where I would throw my hat in. So building a temple would make perfect sense to them because... They still reject Jesus. That's why it makes sense to them. As an unbelieving nation, their temple worship will be rejected just as it was after Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And they worshiped in the temple for another 40 or so years. And that was empty, rejected worship. Nothing about that pleased God. Because continuing sacrificial worship denies that Christ is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
By the way, 2 Thessalonians, which seems to speak of a future Antichrist, says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. That is the future day of the Lord, the, the, the day of judgment when Jesus returns. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Seems the Antichrist will make the temple his throne. And maybe, perhaps, when Jesus returns and takes him down easily, maybe Jesus will put his throne there. Maybe. I can deal with that. I cannot deal with future sacrifices for sin. That I can't deal with. Anyway, I don't don't want to plow ground I've already... Plowed, but there does seem to be some sort of future temple built by an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting nation of Israel. But it's not the one spoken of here in Ezekiel, or at least not exactly, because even if they use these plans, God is not going to inhabit it with His Shekinah glory, because Christ is that glory for us. Alright, that's my little four cents on that passage. I'm not going to fall out with a guy on the way that he interprets these next nine chapters. It is not easy. It is not. There are holes in every position. I caught Blake yesterday, and I said, give me something, man. He said, let me send you what some other people have said. No, I don't want to hear Just give me something, Blake. And I said, look, I've studied all these other positions, and there's holes in all of them. He said, that's right. That's right. I got, him to, I got him to agree with me. That doesn't mean there's not something here for us, though. Two things that I want to say. First, as we work through these next nine chapters, we are going to be faced with the holiness of God. God is holy, and He must be worshipped rightly. And Listen to me. I'm content to say this very confidently. The only possible way for sinners to approach a holy and righteous God is through the merits of Christ. Period. Not through the blood of bulls and goats. This section will continue to expose us to the holiness of God, a subject worth our time in a generation like we live. Secondly, in closing, this would have been greatly encouraging to Ezekiel, to receive this vision. As it shows without question that God did still have a purpose for Israel even beyond His day. The city has been completely wiped out. The walls have been leveled. The temple is in shambles. And God says, but I'm not finished. Listen, no matter how you take this text, that is how the original audience would have taken the text. They would have known at the very least that God still intended to keep His covenant promises with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So we can see that. Now if Brian and Jacob are still here after Amen, and I have my doubts, they are going to answer all of your questions. Stand with me if you will.